wishing you a great day today. This is George Papianis, and I am here as uh, the occasional host of the occasional series that we call Culture Speaks that is broadcast to you or brought to you from UNESCO headquarters here in Paris. Culture Speaks is available to you on iTunes. Don't forget the hashtag, Culture Speaks, because we want you to tell your friends about what we're talking about when we're talking about culture. I'm a lucky guy today because I'm going to put my hands around something that is not so easy to put your hands around. It's not necessarily tangible. It's more intangible. But with me is somebody who's going to be able to explain to us what this all means, and that's Tim Curtis, who runs our program of Intangible Cultural Heritage. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. It's good to be here. I'm glad that you are because in really about a month and a half from now or so, uh, you're going to be uh, sitting before the Intangible Heritage uh, Committee and uh, we'll be going through the uh, list of elements that are up, as we call them here, these, these intangible heritage elements uh, for, uh, for consideration. But before we dive into process and what the Intangible Heritage Convention is about and also to give it its full title at some point here as well so everybody knows, I see you sometimes and I think to myself, there has to be the happiest guy at UNESCO. <laughs> Because here you are, and your job is to look at the things that are part of our lives that we may even take for granted, that we may even not realize that they are part of our lives, and you bring them into focus. I mean, that is amazing. Do you pinch yourself? Uh, yeah, I pinch myself often, sometimes out of happiness, sometimes out of frustration. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> That's, no, I think it, it's, a, it's a great privilege to be working in this area, and I think you described quite well the point of intangible heritage. It's all around us. It's part of what we do all the time. But sometimes it needs to be brought into focus. And um, it needs to be brought into focus because it's potentially under threat? Yeah, I think well, there's lots of intangible heritage that is under threat. In a sense, it's normal that sometimes uh, these ways of living change, maybe even disappear. But uh, I would say, while a lot of it may be not so visible, some of it is very visible and some of it is very important in terms of people preparing for, say, ceremonies uh, and things uh, for years. Uh, and if it's often under threat for reasons external to the control, the desires, the wishes of those who practice it, then there's a problem. I often say the best situation for intangible heritage is you don't need a policy, you don't need a government policy, you don't need UNESCO to do anything, it's just there. The reality is in today's world uh, there's so many forces at play that there are many communities struggling to try to safeguard their intangible cultural heritage and they do need help. And that is where these programs and the convention I think has an important role to play. Um, so, but if we bring it into focus, I guess, in some ways, when we watch the news, for example, and we see um, mass migrations uh, mm. of people for mm. any variety of reasons, from economic reasons to uh, conflict, etc., that is potentially something that pulls apart at these communities and in some ways um, 
makes their this these traditions, these uh, these events that they celebrate, uh, these various expressions mm. that are so integral to their communities and that help them to identify who they are, mm. that gets pulled apart a bit and maybe put in jeopardy. Absolutely. I mean, there's many ways that intangible heritage is threatened. And in particular, we've been working for the last few years and we'll be discussing at the committee again this year uh, how to deal with the situation of intangible cultural heritage in what we call situations of complex emergency, be they co conflict, mass refugee or mass migration, natural disasters. And so absolutely you're right uh, that on one hand uh, these situations put at stress these practices and, and, all th and uh, the possibilities of enacting them, often through the simple fact of dispersion of the communities. The right. communities are no longer... You know, they're dispersed and that creates all sorts of problems with the transmission and the enactment of uh, issues. But on the other hand, what we found is it also becomes a source of, let's say, resilience. It becomes a source of, it becomes something people use to be able to cope with extremely difficult situations. So uh, we found that often displaced people may recreate and look to recreate um, various aspects of intangible heritage. It could be as simple as songs and singing or music. It could be more complex, like enacting ceremonies. And uh, they all, in the, in, the, in the work we've been doing, in the research we've been doing, they attach great importance to this. And this gives them a sense of being able to continue to survive and to go. So it has both, there's a, there's a sense in which it's threatened by these situations, but there's also a strength in when it, it can be it can be used as a tool to deal with these difficult situations. And a lot of intangible heritage is there for reasons, too. It is there to address uh, situations that over centuries people have, have confronted and they, they have come up with all sorts of creative ways to teach about it, to learn about it, to cope with it. And I would say that's an important element of uh, intangible cultural heritage in general. Yeah. You're listening to Culture Speaks. Uh, I'm your host, George Papianis, and uh, my guest uh, today is Tim Curtis, and he is the head of our program on intangible cultural heritage. Um, the official name of this convention, uh, which means that there are member states who have decided that they want to be a part of this, so they actually ascribe to it, and that gives them certain both uh, rights and privileges and responsibilities, mm -hmm. is the name of it is the 2003 Convention on Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage. Let's, let's start to demystify it, okay. uh, which we've pretty much started to roll in that direction, but let's start to pull it apart a little bit. First of all, we have many conventions at, uh, at UNESCO, and in particular, uh, there are even uh, several within the culture sector. Mm. Uh, perhaps uh, among the uh, better known or best known is the World Heritage Convention. And we find at times that there is a bit of confusion between the Intangible Heritage Convention or the Convention on the Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage and the World Heritage mm. uh, Convention. Explain the difference between these two conventions, what we see as built heritage or natural heritage and intangible. Okay. Without going into all the detailed complexities of the conventions and how they operate, there's some basic core principles where, uh, first of all, let's call intangible heritage maybe living heritage a little bit. That, ah, yes. might, that might point to people who are not used to the term about what we're talking about. 
Um, and to say that they, they are completely separate is probably not true. Intangible cultural heritage is linked to built heritage and, and vice versa. But when you get into the mechanisms of how to define it, how to safeguard it, how to approach it, we're dealing with very different uh, subject matters. Intangible cultural heritage is people's livings practices that are practiced today. And that needs to be approached in a different way than you would approach uh, the protection of a site or a building um, for very obvious reasons, I think. Um, so uh, the, the instruments, if you will, the tools uh, of the World Heritage Convention, which have been elaborated for sites and monuments, don't necessarily apply to the safeguarding of intangible cultural heritage. And there are different methodologies on how you would go about safeguarding. But there's some also key, key conceptual differences. First of all, in terms of the lists, and I would say the lists are an important part of these conventions, but not the only part of the conventions. The World Heritage List uh, is based on the idea of outstanding universal value. That is the key, key thing to demonstrate for inscription on um, the uh, World Heritage List. Right. The intangible cultural heritage, the list, what we call the representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity, does not look to establish outstanding universal value. Um, for a number of reasons, because it's very difficult to define how you would do it. Uh, we don't go into comparative analysis and say, oh, well, this kind of singing is the best in the world and this one is less. Who makes that judgment? across cultures. It's very complicated to do that. Uh, so the, the list, the way, the, the, the criteria for choosing inscription of the list, the philosophy behind it is quite different. The representative list is meant to be representative to raise awareness of intangible cultural heritage in general. So, and, and because intangible cultural heritage is basically safeguarded through young people continuing to do it, the next generation continuing this to do it. This is the most important part of it, this isn't it? This is the key to it. So it's not something you can go and put a square around and say this has to be preserved. In fact, we avoid the... We don't use the word preservation precisely because the, the, the convention defines intangible heritage as dynamic... And living. Living. And constantly adapting to the social and environmental conditions of each generation. That means it has to be meaningful. And people have to be doing it because it continues to have meaning to their lives, not, let's call it as a kind of hotel lobby show where you do a dance and you dress up in a certain way. It's meant to be meaningful and living. Be and, part of the community and, itself. And in order to do that, it needs to transform through generations and it needs to adapt and transform. So we avoid the kind of the preservation, conservation language. The rigidity. Of, yeah, which is important when you're dealing with the, the because, Acropolis. Because you want to make sure that you are not slapping in all sorts of bad, you know, new substances and everything. So there's, there's a good justification for that inbuilt heritage, but it's quite dangerous in intangible heritage because it decontextualizes the intangible heritage and it takes away this kind of what we call the social dimension, the social function of the intangible heritage. So we see it as something that even though it's passed from, or the, we, the convention defines it as something that is passed from generation to generation, but is still constantly, it is dynamic and evolving. And so when we approach safeguarding, and when we approach safeguarding plans for certain elements, that has to come into consideration. So coming back to the difference, so we have these kind of conceptual differences and we have these methodological differences. 
quite simply because you don't approach the protection of a building as you would approach a community and its living practices. And I think that makes sense to everybody. The adaptation, is it a double-edged sword? I mean, is it, is it possible that it could adapt in ways in which it would no longer be viable as a part of the representative list? Or that adaptation is actually what makes it even more viable, more important? Okay. Um, I think the question is not whether it's viable for the representative list. It's whether it's viable for the community that practices it. Okay? And what another interesting aspect about this particular convention is the great emphasis it puts on communities as those who define their own intangible cultural heritage. So the key point of the definition, and this is why we, cannot, we don't get into a comparative analysis or comparisons, is that the, 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 the last word on defining ACH or defining what intangible heritage is comes from those who do it, from the communities that practice it. Of course, we have a lot of use. We work with a lot of experts, and we need that. We do trainings, we do documentations, all sorts of things. But if a community says, this is our heritage, this is how we define it, this is how we practice, and this is what it means, that takes precedence over anybody else's definition of how it should be or what it is. So transformation, what does that mean as this evolution? Well, that's difficult. You know, I don't have a formulaic response. This is a case-by-case -case basis based on what is the community facing? For instance, you talked earlier about, let's say, mass displacement through crisis. You might find that a community had a certain set of practices, traditions. I, I don't know. I'm just thinking imaginatively off the top of my head. Uh, again, let's come back to some kinds of crafts making, traditional crafts making, which they. it's not just the practice that they would make the crafts, but maybe they were using it as an exchange I don't know. So often you'll get objects that get used in exchange uh, as a ceremonies. No, oh. not even oh. as a barter, say okay. as a reconciliation. Ah. So two sides are having an argument, and uh, in the same way we'd have a court case and it, uh, it finishes with an exchange of objects or goods. Now, these community might be displaced. They may find that suddenly they don't have the same materials, but they feel the need to keep this reconciliation system going, and they may be adapting with different materials and different things. So in that sense, the key sort of uh, social context is kept even as the form is transforming. Mm -hmm. So is that valid or not valid? It's valid because the community continues to use that and, and work with it in the sense that is meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. But then that's why you, we don't go for an outside person and say, you haven't used the same fiber here or you haven't uh -huh. used the same... You see, I mean, that's an imaginary right. example. And yet when I remember... Um we were we were actually here extolling the virtues of a um, of an element that had basically uh, was coming back from the precipice, which was the biguala music, yes. which involves a specific gourd, mm -hmm. and that element included both the cultivation of the gourd, the practice of of creating the instrument, and. It's musical expression, am I correct? Yeah. So in that case, exactly. And this is why I did say, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to give you one clear answer right. that would cover all of the different aspects. Exactly. In that case, to play that particular instrument, you need that particular tree, you need that particular gourd, that particular plant. Mm -hmm. And part of the safeguarding involved, involved getting seeds to plant those plants. But 
it's not enough to just plant the plants. You have to know how to play it. You have to teach other people <laughs> how to play it. You have to want to play it, and, and you have to have a meaning behind playing it. So intangible heritage comes around that whole, uh, that whole ensemble, if you will. And why, and I think maybe I'll give a bit of why intangible heritage, even though it may involve physical objects, and it often does. And, uh, and this, one of the things is when we look, what we're looking at safeguarding in the intangible heritage approach is not the product, but the process, so to speak. It's not necessarily, as you would do in a museum in movable heritage, you make sure the objects are properly conserved. Of course, that's important and that can be part of safeguarding. But the focus of the safeguarding is not the product, it's the meaning and the process around the product, if there is a product. So let's say a traditional musical instrument. What we would do in an ICH safeguarding plan would be not necessarily conserve the instrument. We may do that as part of it. But what we're particularly looking at is conserving the knowledge and the know-how around the fabrication of the instrument, the playing of the instrument, the context in which the instruments are playing with the community so that those communities continue it. And this is where the concept of intergenerational transmission becomes completely completely central to right. the safeguarding because in the long term the intangible heritage continues when the next generation wants it to continue and so working with youth working with young people is critical in that in that respect yeah. and that was one of the uh, i think important achievements that uh, resulted from uh, the uh, the biguala uh, movement there was the fact that they they really got young people involved in Uganda yeah. uh, in that community and, I mean, for those who might not be aware, I mean, we were down to the, like, I think the last two men who actually knew the range of this, uh, of this element, the music, etc. And they've passed that on. In fact, one of them died during, even during the process mm. when mm. they were working with the community mm. to recover this, mm. this tradition. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And so you can say that by getting these young people interested, involved, that that is the major step to ensuring the viability of the element as it goes forward. All the documentation we would do, that's great to do documentation, but that doesn't mean the element stays alive unless the next generation picks it up and continues. So I'm a member state, I've, I've, I've joined, I've, I've got an element inscribed on the representative list. Um, I'm celebrating... I'm happy. What's my responsibility? <laughs> I mean, okay. because it's it's interesting. I mean, there's we, we the critical the critical um, protection mm. is with the community. Yeah, and you've established that mm. I think, and mm. and and beautifully said in that it is about the handing down of these traditions, building in the interest and the understanding of why it's important, getting young people involved. Mm. Uh, but but uh, governments can help or hinder this process. Oh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> that's you know, why we have a convention. And as I said earlier, in the ideal world, there is no need. Communities are just doing it. But the fact of today is that's not the case. Now, you're right. There may be policies without realizing it that may hinder transmission of intangible cultural heritage. But there's also ways to proactively create enabling environments. Um, and they may be, uh, again, depending on the kinds of intangible cultural heritage, they could be providing uh, spaces for transmission, for training. Uh, we're trying to work a lot now with the education sector on 
integrating in schooling systems because a lot of these, uh, particularly in, um, well, all around the world, uh, there's a bit of a cultural disjunct between what gets taught in schools and the kind of knowledge that's transmitted at home. Now, it doesn't mean we, we replace it, but by giving space for that to be acknowledged, uh, it can help with the transmission. So I'd say the main roles, first of all, are safeguarding, so creating an enabling environment, paying attention to this, making, making sure you're not undermining it, uh, creating an enabled environment to support it. I'd also come, like to come back just quickly to say that, in fact, unlike the World Heritage Convention, we have two separate lists in mm -hmm. this convention. We have the representative list, the representative list of humanity, but we also have what we call the urgent safeguarding list. And the urgent safeguarding list is a list which is specifically intended to bring attention to, at the national and international level, of elements that are under serious threat, like the Baguala, uh, to, in order to mobilize support. So, you know, the approach is that for some elements of intangible cultural heritage, there is a need for direct uh, intervention. Uh, it can be things like recognizing master, masters and giving them uh, apprentices, uh, subsidies for apprentices. I mean, there's a whole range of policies. And then there are elements which really don't, you know, uh, one we inscribed uh, last year uh, at the 12th session of the community, Kumela, in India. I mean, we're talking about 12 million people who participate in a ceremony of going into the river, that's not about to be under threat. The threat identified in that is the pollution in the river and broader environmental threats. But the, so there's probably no need to have a big policy about you know, how to encourage more people to do this. What there is, is a need to make sure that the environment in which it's happening is sustainable. You, know, that, you mentioned environmental threats, and it made me wonder, because of these traditions and because they are so rooted in the communities and and in some ways built into them at some point is a sustainability issue. Yeah. Do we have elements that are, I guess one would say, teaching us or could teach us how to be kinder to the planet? Absolutely. Uh, there, there are domains of intangible heritage identified. There's five of them identified in the convention. I won't go through them all now. Yeah, yeah well, we should. But one, of them, one of them is knowledge of nature and the universe. And uh, we have a number of elements which are actually inscribed precisely on that basis. The, uh, the cosmology of the Zapara people in Latin America is one which was inscribed a long time ago. Last year, a very in interesting one again from, uh, uh, from Latin America, from Peru, which were the traditional water judges. So these are traditional systems of managing water uh, that, uh, that are recognized in tangible cultural heritage that do have a direct impact you know, on water management. There are a number of other ones too, but yeah, sure, there's, a, there's quite a few. I mean, clearly uh, the link between traditional systems of resource management uh, and tangible heritage and uh, c contemporary environmental concerns are important. And uh, particularly, I would say, uh, we see a lot in indigenous peoples, of, uh, in you know, indigenous peoples who have deep cultural meaning embedded in the natural environment and enact lots of intangible cultural heritage around that, uh, around those sites, natural sites, cultural sites, they're neither, they're both, um, which serve to maintain them. If those environmental aspects are destroyed, the whole thing falls apart as well. Yeah. We're talking uh, with Tim Curtis, uh, who uh, heads up the UNESCO program on the 2003 Convention on Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage. Um, you've got 
the big meeting coming up in November. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, one in which there is a lot of attention because of the various elements that are going to be up and and uh, countries are excited about the possibility of being inscribed onto the representative list. Um, but there is a process here that mm-hmm. predates this whole system. And this is where I think we need to kind of put some clarity around this because I think that there's a bit of confusion that exists when certain elements come up and they get defined in a shorthand that completely eviscerates everything that we've been talking about up to this point. And and that is something that I'd like you to help us put in the minds of people as to why we are not about the pizzaiola. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. No, no. And... But we are about what is behind it. Yeah. Knowledge, but, tradition, etc. Well, well, let's let's come back to that pizzaiolo uh, 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 example because it was very interesting. The file itself, what was proclaimed, was a specific tradition in in Napoli that's been going for a couple of hundred years, where they train the pizzaiolo, the pizza makers, and there's a school, and they transmit, and they do the famous pizza twirling. They do the uh, there's a, they have a bunch of songs and it's a tradition that's kept that's been going for a couple of hundred years. It exists in a particular place and it's part of that community's identity. That is what was inscribed. Of course, some of the press came out and said pizza is now UNESCO heritage. Right. It is not the pizza that was inscribed, but the process behind it. So I think it comes back to what I talked about the safeguarding. What is being recognised or promoted is not the product. It's the process and the context around it, the meaning and the know-how and the skills associated with it, and that sometimes get lost in communications or in general understandings. Uh, I think the most important also thing to remember, sometimes we look at things from other parts of the world and they seem a bit odd, okay? So people giggle a bit, oh, this is recognized as heritage. But you have to put yourself to understand the meaning in the context of those who practice it, that community. And something that might be trivial for one group of people can be extremely important for another group of people. And that's why we also avoid this comparative approach and comparative analysis. So I don't know if that answers your question, but what I'm trying to get at is, is when the evaluation body, I haven't talked about the whole process, is doing its work, it's looking at certain criteria, but it's also looking very carefully to see to try to get at the perspective of the practitioners and the communities who are the ones who can make the most sense and who are really the ones who make sense of this and to make sense of it from that perspective. I'm going to identify one that for me I could see might have gotten a few giggles, which it's the, it's the coaxing ritual for camels in, in Mongolia. And when, when I watched the video of this, you know, it almost brought a tear to my eye. I have to tell you. I mean, this is... And you see how how committed is this human interaction mm. with, these, with these very important animals that are critical to the survival yeah. of these communities. Mm. And, and a depth of connection and, a, and of true affection mm. that, you know, perhaps on the outside, but when you begin to understand it... Mm-hmm you see something that you can only describe as beautiful. Yeah. It's just a beautiful thing about our part and 
the whole balance between the various elements of nature, the creatures on this earth. And I found it to be to be a remarkable uh, inscription. Yeah, I, I'm a, I, I think that's a great example to use because, um, as you say, it shows this kind of deep interconnectedness of people with uh, animals, but also, I mean, just to explain, these are ceremonies where people in Mongolia come together, and in Mongolia we're talking about a vast country where people are quite dispersed for the, the, to, to coax camels to accept nursing from the young. But what's also going on is that, if you read the file, that the communities are coming together across vast spaces and the young single, young men and women, single men, use this as an opportunity also to find potential spouses. So what's also happening at the same time we have this deep interconnectedness between the animals and the people, communities across vast distances are connecting, people are connecting, and it's this whole integrated whole. So it's a lot more than just that act of trying to get a mother camel to accept another camel to, to, to nurse from it, you know. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's an example which from the outside, people who don't understand right. would say, okay, right. what's, what is this about? You can call it intangible, <laughs> but this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, this, is, this is really about, about all aspects <laughs> of the community and, and the benefits of it in terms of the community and continuing along. So the community... <clears throat> identifies this as central to its cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it's a great example, yeah. So here we are. You're going to be, as we said, um, in Mauritius mm -hmm. for this meeting. Um, and give us a sense for those of us who might not be truly immersed into this, but in some rapid succession, because uh, I want to save some, uh, some time for some other, uh, some other issues, Take us through the process. What happens at the at the meeting? Or if you want, you can even back it up a little bit to the point of the applications that come in, okay. how that process well, gets evaluated and then go to the committee. Yeah, okay. Maybe just to say how... Maybe I'll explain a little bit how the evaluation works. Mm -hmm. um, it does take some time. Countries... So we... There's a lot of... Uh, first of all, you know, people can't just... Communities don't submit directly to UNESCO. Countries sit, submit, you know, and there is a quota. So we treat 50 files a year. Those files come in uh, in March of one year and then we in UNESCO do a work to uh, assess if they're full and they're complete. If they're not, we send them back and ask them to be complete. So they get processed for the first year and then in the second year they get sent to an evaluation body. And this evaluation body is considered of 12 people who are elected through the committee one from each of UNESCO's regions or electoral groups, to be mm -hmm. more precise. Right. Um, two from each of the regions. One who are NGOs who are accredited to the convention. So these are NGOs active in tangible cultural heritage safeguarding who apply to sit on the evaluation body. And the other ones are experts that are presented by countries. So they collectively come to a decision along all the criteria we could talk about the criteria, but that would take some time. But there's a set of criteria that needs to be examined. They do a report. They do an in-depth examination. Come, they Each individual one of them looks through each file, and collectively they come to an agreement. That gets then presented to the committee. The committee is an intergovernmental committee, uh, which consists of 24 countries, again, uh, with different uh, uh, 
regional uh, seats, a number of seats per region. How many member states are... No, we have 178 countries who have ratified this convention. Mm-hmm. This is rather remarkable in terms of the speed at which this convention has been adopted. Uh, we're near universal ratification, uh, and it happened very, very fast. Uh, clearly, it's speaking to something that many, many countries feel is important. I mean, the, just the success of that, that rate of ratification. Um, so then the committee decides to uh, inscribe based on the recommendations of the evaluation body. Or sometimes there's discussions whether they agree with the recommendations of the evaluation mm-hmm. body. So the committee process, part of the committee, is about three days of the committee will be spent going through the files and going one by one to see which files will be inscribed. Files that are not inscribed are not necessarily given a no. They may be referred. Mm -hmm. In many cases, there are good elements of intangible cultural heritage. The evaluation body, according to criteria, said this is a good element, but the file is not good enough. So it's important to state that the file, that uh, an element being referred, it doesn't mean it's not worthy of being on the list. It means you need to go back and do some more work and come back in a later year. Yeah. Then you have a process of after inscription. Some of these are, are inscribed sometimes directly to the urgent list uh, for urgent safeguarding. Yeah. yeah. That's the, and that is a difference with World Heritage. It's not that it's one list where it's moved from one, uh, you know, where in World Heritage sites are inscribed on the World Heritage list. If there are problems with the um, protection of the outstanding, if the outstanding universal value is threatened of a site, right. the committee can, do, can decide to put it on the World Heritage, the list of World Heritage sites in danger. What we have are two separate lists, which means if you apply to the urgent safeguarding list, you go directly to the urgent safeguarding list. It's not an automatic move between one or the others. And uh, when countries apply to the urgent safeguarding list, they also have the opportunity to apply simultaneously for funding to help them implement a safeguarding plan. Yeah. This is another aspect of the of, of the convention, then, that the mm. convention helps with this process and there's funding yeah. in there. Yes. Uh, I mean, states, parties to the convention can access funding through the fund of the convention, and uh, they can be either, as I mentioned earlier, for the implementation of uh, safeguarding measures around or safeguarding plans around urgent safeguarding, elements in need of urgent safeguarding, but there are also other, make, other ways uh, we use the fund for co- general capacity building, building up the policy work, the capacity of people in country to help set up plans and programs to sustain intangible cultural heritage in the very many different contexts. You can imagine that with this kind of heritage, uh, the contexts are so varied in the different parts of the world that it's, it's impossible to have a, a one one-size-fits-all approach, yeah. Is there also some of that going to some of the policy work that might need to happen at the, sure, at the, sure, uh, at the sure. highest levels for, for establishing... Uh... Sure. We, we may be working also on sending policy missions countries who want to adopt. I mean, I think one of the great successes of this convention, let's put the list to the side, is the fact that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, very few countries had programs in intangible cultural heritage. It started first, in fact, in, in, in East Asia, in Japan... And Korea were the first countries in the 1950s to define this. But, uh, you know, I remember 15, 20 years ago, nobody talked about intangible heritage in, in terms. Now, now, many, many, most, many countries will have in their Ministry of Culture or in, 
in what you know what maybe arms left cultural institutions or other structures who are now devoted to understanding safeguarding and helping for the safeguarding of intangible cultural heritage and i think the speed at which that has grown is quite remarkable and is really a big impact of this convention yeah i'm george papianis i'm with tim curtis this is a uh, culture speaks uh our occasional program when we talk about uh, issues related to uh, our cultural lives. And this is one in which I think everybody can find something that speaks to them. In fact, it may indeed be something that they do every day in their lives. I'd, I'd say, George, that the thing about intangible cultural heritage, everybody has it. Everybody has it. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's not going to make you sick. Ten years on. You're at a crossroads right now. Are you? Are you? Are you at a point in this um, with the convention uh, that you're you're looking back? Yeah. You're kind of assessing where you are. You're thinking about what what's what's yeah. ahead. Yeah, sure. I think um, just as intangible heritage adopts through the generations and needs to adapt, adjust to to the world, uh, it's quite normal. Uh, that some of the procedures and ideas, uh, you know, we, we revisit. There are some things we're looking at. Uh, one of the things that uh, is interesting in the last General Assembly adopted, what's a technical term, but what's important to understand, the overall results framework for the convention is really a, a measure, a tra a trying to measure the impact of the convention in the different countries. So based on that, we're going to uh, re we're in the process of revising and reviewing all the periodic reports that countries are giving so that we have some base you know base indicators w which we can see you know so that eventually we can have a bigger overview of how is this um, how is this being uh, safeguarding what's the situation what's evolving that's an interesting development linking that also to example we spoke earlier about environmental concerns but there are areas of health of food of all sorts of areas concerning the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, what is the role of intangible heritage contributing to that. That's an important aspect. Um, also, uh, where there's a current reflection going on maybe to, let's say, fine-tune, revise, uh, reflect on the listing processes and the criteria, uh, of the question of whether an element goes to the urgent safeguarding or stays on the representative, what is the re relationship between that these questions are being discussed and probably over the next few years there will be some changes in that in that regard who knows it'll depend on the member states and the discussions they have i think it's healthy i think we've also seen in the world heritage convention which has been around for 40 years now that criteria for inscription have changed i've seen world heritage files from the early 1980s and i can tell you they're very different to uh, what what gets done today are you optimistic about the future of of of, of the, the convention, convention and absolutely. of intangible? Yes, I mean. no, absolutely. I think I think uh, I am I'm optimistic because, well, in some places, because people are becoming more aware of it, and I think the fact that this convention, the fact that we have 178 countries in so little time sign it, means that it's speaking to something that people are concerned about. Does that mean I'm optimistic about all forms of intangible culture heritage amongst all communities everywhere? No, absolutely not. <coughs> there are communities, uh, you know, severely at risk of basically, you know, culturally being uh, submerged into others. There's all sorts of issues. But I think that there is a growing appreciation that this is the stuff of life. This is the stuff that makes life worthwhile. This is the stuff 
that gives us all sorts of joy or helps us deal with things that it's important. It's not quantifiable. It's difficult to put economic uh, you know, indicators on what it's worth. It's not about that. Some intangible heritage, of course, has economic uh, uh, benefits, but it's also about meaningful life. And so, yeah, I'm optimistic and I, we should all be, but uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't um, challenges. challenges. And I think the fact that there's reconvention means that there are threats that are so big. And I think uh, uh, otherwise we wouldn't need, as I said, ideally, you don't need a convention for these things or you don't need policies. The reality of the world today, the pressures facing communities is that it is, there is a need to create space to at least not destroy and also sometimes to support and for those in need of urgent safeguarding to actively support. That's Tim Curtis. He runs our program on intangible cultural heritage here at UNESCO. Tim, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, sharing with us not only your knowledge, but also your passion thank for, you, George. for what you do and what you do for all of us in terms of keeping these traditions alive, these essential parts of who we are. And as you so lovingly put it, I think, they are the things that make our life livable, I guess. Um, I'm George Papianis, and uh, I'm happy that uh, I'm able to be the host of this program, Culture Speaks, because I get to do this on a fairly routine basis, although we call it occasional from time to time. And I want to make sure that you tell your friends so that uh, they also have a chance to share in this and uh, figure out what it is that we're up to here at UNESCO and why we're actually relevant to the things that make your lives interesting and the things that you need to protect and hold on to especially those of you who are coming aware of these beautiful traditions. They're for you to take forward. Hashtag Culture Speaks. Don't forget to tweet at us. Be part of the conversation. It's our community. And if I'm not mistaken, don't we go with the hashtag Living Heritage? Isn't that uh, what we talk about for Intangible? Mm-hmm. Hashtag Living Heritage. If you're going to be uh, following the program of the convention as it uh, takes place in Mauritius from the 26th of November to the 1st of December, uh, you'll be able to see how this all unfolds and take part in the joy and excitement as elements are inscribed. Again, Tim Curtis, thank you very much. Again, I'm George Papianis. This is Culture Speaks, and I wish you a great day wherever you are.